Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul, Matt Riptel, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times science reporter, writes, quote, Creativity is part of our more primitive physiology. It comes from the cellular level, part of our most essential survival machinery. We are creativity machines. And he investigates the nature of creativity through interviews with prominent creatives on their craft, as well as scientists who've been working to unlock the secrets of the creative brain. The book is published by HarperCollins, and it brings Matt Rechtel to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. How are you? Okay. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. You nailed it. Uh, you begin your book in Jerusalem. Why there? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> uh, two reasons. Um, one, I learned something very interesting about Jerusalem, um, and which I'll come to in a minute. And two, I decided to go to the place where a lot of people um, associate creation itself with and see what I might learn from just being around it. But the, the big thing I learned was that Jerusalem had a population of around 500,000 in the year zero when all that wow. creative, yeah, when all that creative energy was going on. And a lot of times we associate creativity with the isolated genius, um, you know, the Hollywood version. In point of fact, um, the research shows that population level has a lot to do with creativity. Mm. Jerusalem, Florence, Harlem, uh, you know. Silicon Rome, Valley, New York, Silicon Paris. Silicon Valley, Hollywood. Congregations mm. of people, uh, no pun intended with Jerusalem, mm. competing, collaborating, uh, cooperating, and lots of creativity happens as a result. Now, creativity sparks achievement and innovation in art, science, technology, business, sports, virtually every activity. You say we are creativity machines. Can you explain that? Yeah, let's go back to the let's go back to bacteria. Um, another uh, place I visited with was in Switzerland at a laboratory where uh, a biologist explores creativity from the perspective of bacteria. Hmm. So in these in the lab. He's got these bacteria and he douses them. I don't know why I'm laughing. This is kind of this is kind of sad. He douses them with antibiotics. Uh, it's basically nuclear hellfire. And some of them survive. Why do they survive? Well, uh, ever, you know, this might speak for itself, but they go through the Darwinian experience of random mutation when they reproduce. And some find a solution, if you will. It's not a conscious act, but they come up with a mutation that allows them to survive. And this scholar would say this is the essence of, of this is nature's uh, primitive version of creativity, the emergence of a random set of ideas that connect together, that wind up creating a solution uh, to a problem. And that is go ahead. No, uh, finish your thought. That that wiring is in us to this day. The difference is we can control it much better than the unconscious act of a bacteria. But not just bacteria, uh, all, uh, pretty much uh, all other animals in one way or another engage in creative, creative acts. Uh, birds build nests, for example. Yes. Uh, but you say humans were born to create. Is a parallel uh, that links how animals have adapted to their environments and the ways that humans develop their ideas? Yes and no. I mean, there's a parallel in that those happen 
more or less by accident, not by consciousness. But the mind, the human mind, sends this into the stratosphere. And so we have it in us, this creative instinct and capacity, and then it is multiplied exponentially by the power of our brain, specifically the relationship between our subconscious, where ideas percolate, and the conscious or uh, analytical parts of the brain that subject these random ideas to rigor and bring them to the world. Now, uh, is it... Did it come originally with uh, with uh, the early humans uh, out of the need to to survive? For example, creativity is responsible for the creation of of fire, for light, warmth, and cooking, for the the use of water to douse those flames. Then cave paintings, clothes, the use of weapons, all, all seem to me, except for the the cave paintings, to grow out of necessity. Well, all of the above, and I'm going to even argue that the paintings themselves came out of necessity, but but we can I can get into that why that might be in a second. However, they came out of necessity um, in the sense that they progressed us forward. But in a certain way, we're describing the necessity after the fact, meaning We may not have realized how cold we were when fire came about. It was a solution to what ultimately we recognize as a problem. And the reason I mentioned that level, that type of logic here is it is my impression from talking to uh, creators and scientists that while we say necessity is the mother of of invention, it's actually not correct. What is correct is to say, to my mind, Authenticity is the grandparent of invention, and necessity is a subset of authenticity. What do I mean? I think when that cave person was messing around and was struck by the idea for fire, I don't think it was that the cave person initially necessarily said, I'm going to stop being cold. <laughs> I think the cave person said, holy crud, I've got an idea. This is awesome. And progress followed. Well, if if uh, necessity isn't uh, the mother of invention, uh, into, uh, I hope that Frank Zapp is not listening. Um, now, uh, <laughs> I did get I didn't get Frank Zappa, but I did interview Carlos Santana mm-hmm. and uh, Yo Yo Ma. So now you wrote a very popular. And we'll get to the, the, some of those interviews as well. You wrote a very popular piece in the New York Times titled How to Be Creative. And in it, you provide a list of prescriptive advice on how to unleash your inner creativity through steps like paying attention to your imagination, embracing imperfection, giving your brain some much-needed rest. Did that get you thinking about delving deeper into the subject and writing this book? It did. That Writing that got me interested Um Listening and the, the response feedback, to it, I assume. And the response to it. And 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 the fact that I uh, when I get into something, I, I oftentimes want to understand more um, and I really want to get into the guts of the machine. And so I felt that that was both true and surface level. And so I went in hunt of the science. And how much of what you found is based on new research? Yeah, lots of it over the last two, three, four years, and actually um, even down to the the final, um, you know, 
edits in this book, I was looking at new research. Oh, just very recently, some stuff about the relationship between belief in uh, religion and research just came out in 2022, I believe, or 2021. Uh, research just in the last uh, few months about um, the relationship between, and now I'm, I'm racking my brain to remember which just came out. Uh, it, it had to do with uh, subconscious views of creativity. There's a lot of stuff happening right now, and the reason for the new research is that we have recognized, we writ large as a society, the value of innovation and the value, and, and, the, and, and we are recognizing how quickly things move. And that puts an emphasis on creativity in a different kind of way than if you had, say, a slower moving economy where creating something new uh, and disruptive wasn't so essential and so fundamental to the way the economy worked. Mm -hmm. There is that disruptive element, and we'll get to that later as well. You say creativity is something that we all have, and it's just a question of recognizing it and respecting it in ourselves. Do people not always respect it? Oh, far from it. Um, uh, there, there's just a bunch of, a lot of stories about this in the book, but um, one that pops to mind is I knew a guy years ago um, who who was in uh, law school. He, he's, a, he's a generation before me, and he told me this story. He was in law school, and he said he, he, he really didn't like the fact that, uh, that he felt he had nothing creative in him. And he went to the store and bought a painting easel and went in his backyard and started to paint. And after about a half hour, he threw the paint bristles down. He's like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. Hmm. I'm not creative. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't enjoy this in any way. He went on to make, oh, I don't know, $100 million in real estate. And he didn't fashion himself as creative at all. And in point of fact, he was quite creative in the real estate world. He wasn't just creative in the way that many people, um, you know, define creativity. It's a little different question than the one you asked. There are also people who resist trying to be creative altogether. And that is because it is really risky. And you say that research has shown that ideas that are novel and original can make people uncomfortable and generate resistance. Yeah. So, so if somebody's my, having a, an, an idea that might be of interest, they may say, oh, I don't want to deal with that right now, and they just dismiss it? They may not even get that far. So basic underlying science here, uh, researchers look at what people say explicitly they feel about creativity, and what people say is, uh, oh, I love it. I associate it with sunshine and rainbows and puppies. But then these same researchers give these same study subjects a subconscious bias test. This is the kind of test you use to see how people f might feel about a different tribe or race or ethnicity. And lo and behold, people subconsciously associate creativity with vomit and toxins mm -hmm. and poison. Why? Well, those are very disruptive things. They are scary things. They create risk. So in some cases, to your question, people don't even get to the point of saying, I'm not going to do that idea. They won't let the idea in in the first place. It's interesting. Vomit, poison, agony. You did. You mentioned that one in the book as well. Risk. <laughs> I don't I don't see how thinking about vomit in any way uh, uh, is associated with creativity. 
Well, it, it's it's not vomit per se. It's what vomit represents in the in the psyche, and that's discomfort mm-hmm. um, and maybe even physical pain. Why would you associate that with creativity? Well, the simple reason is that creations are disruptive. Now, don't get me wrong. This is actually a book about hope. I know it's I know it's not uh, you know considered uh, popular these days to write about hope, but this is a very hopeful book. Ultimately, that said, the reason these associations get made is creativity disrupts things on a fundamental level. For the individual creating, it means risk. That's scary, but when it works. Creativity is disruptive. Let's take the simple example of the battery-powered car, an extraordinary creation. And at the same time, it is insanely disruptive to people making a living in, say, in Detroit off battery-powered cars or in the fossil fuel industry. That's a big deal. So even the most successful, quote-unquote, creations come with major side effects of disruption. We see that where coal miners are suddenly out of work, for example. A hundred percent. And and you, you ideally you want to have progress in a way that also takes care of the disrupted because it is powerful and it is happening fast. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at large is Matt Richtel, R-I-C-H-T-E-L. His latest book, Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science and the Soul, published by the, the Mariner imprint of of uh what is that harper uh, collins harper collins and they love that you mentioned mariner because i've got an amazing editor there named peter hubbard who's running it so thank you peter and this is wbai new york 99.5 fm streaming live at wbai.org you note that creativity isn't necessarily the result of a high iq but that openness and curiosity are critical is the uh the, the concept of the creative genius just a myth yeah, I think it's largely a myth. I mean, there's let make no mistake. These, these, the output can be genius, but is the person a genius? I don't even know if I know what that word means exactly. Oh. In the sense that um, if you if you associate it with intellect or IQ, which may not be and is not the best measure for intellect, there is not a clear relationship between IQ and creativity. The research will bear out that if you've got an IQ between 100 and 120, that's sufficient to be highly creative. And arguably an IQ over, say, 145, 147 can be limiting of creativity. So uh, genius is not the word we're looking for here. Might that suggest that Leonardo da Vinci and Einstein might not have had high IQs or were they exceptions? Well, I, you know, I don't know if they had their IQ tested, and I'm sure someone's going to call in and say that Einstein's was. I'm not sure it, the, the measure uh, worked mm-hmm. in Da Vinci. It was, it was around in Da Vinci's case. No. Certainly there can be exceptions. Um, but, you know, let me, let me just tell you a story about Einstein. So there, this is a, one of my favorites I heard for the book from a scholar who studies the great creators. He says, Einstein goes to a colleague one day and says, ah, I've got the, mm-hmm. I've got the unified field theory this elusive thing he'd been seeking. And the colleague says, well, Albert, uh, that's great, but under that theory, the universe can't exist. Mm -hmm. And what Einstein was known for among among creativity scholars, more so than quality, is quantity. So it's not that he got everything right. 
It's that he tried a lot of stuff. And you would say that of one great creator after the next. And when I say great, I'm here, I'm referring to the group of people whose inventions we remember, but it's true of many of us lesser souls who are out there putting out stuff all the time. I'm sure you know, you've talked to many entrepreneurs. I have friends here in Silicon Valley and they've got an idea every 45 minutes. And that is much more indicative of a creative person than say, high IQ. So you note that Picasso created over 20,000 works of art. Bach composed over 1,000 works. Um, aren't you just saying that very creative people are very prolific? Yes, they are. But, but, but think about what that means. It means that they were willing to try a lot of things where the answer was either uncertain or may well have been wrong. So that goes against the whole genius argument in and of itself. Instead of saying, I'm going to solve this problem, and here's an explicit uh, way that, it, that, dot, that, that connects all the dots, they're saying, hey, wait, here's an idea. Hey, wait, here's an idea. Hey, wait, here's an idea. Isn't it a problem when you then feel that you're going against the status quo? Exactly, which takes us back to that, that vomit research and the toxins research and it also explains why creators can be a, a little bit difficult for others to deal with because they're shaking things up. And for those of us, uh, you know, I, I, I live in both worlds. I create a lot of stuff and I like to be comfortable. And, and that's a constant tension because let's just think of uh, someone who's comfortable with a way of doing things. Imagine you're on your phone you know, I, I'm a dad. I'm on my phone. Everything my kids are doing is mysterious to me. I just wish my phone would stop where it is and I could stop downloading new apps and trying to figure things out. Uh, I'm invested in an old way of doing things. All that creativity does serve a purpose and it is disruptive. Hasn't research found that some of the best ideas come when you're relaxed and your mind wanders, such as yeah. when you're in the shower or driving? Yeah, I, I don't know. This is in New York. And if my bud, Gary Trudeau, is listening, uh, he always came up with stuff. Uh, he would he would describe it to me as uh, when he's in the shower. And I think uh, Jane Pauley, his wife, he would say, would keep a scratch pad by her bed and wake up and scribble things out. And I'm going to get to the research in a second. But there's uh, I, I can't remember the two great scholars. I think Salvador Dali was one of them. And uh, and who did the light bulb? Uh, Edison. Yes, Edison, thank you. Uh, they, would, they each had a similar habit of um, falling asleep with a heavy object in their hands uh, during a nap. And when the object would fall out of their hands, uh, they would wake up and often be struck with an idea. The researcher <laughs> behind, yeah, the researcher behind this idea refers to it as a hypnagogic state between wakefulness and asleep. And he went and did some research that looked at great physicists and uh, terrific writers and artists and had them write down what they were doing when they were having a big aha moment. And, a, and about 20% of the time, they were doing nothing what at all having to do with the task that the or, or with the idea that came to mind. So they might be doing something mundane, like working in the kitchen, uh, the, you know, sweeping the floor, cleaning the car. The researcher says to me, how many times do you can you think of something where you're the best at it 20 percent of the time when you're not trying? Well, Beethoven came up, you point out, with musical phrases while he was going on walks. Uh, 
he would abandon some and improve and keep others. But what does that tell us about the creative process? Why was that better than working at his desk or at a piano? Because it's a great question. And what the research seems to suggest is that when you are directed at a task, you tend to be more rule-oriented around the rules. When your mind is wandering, you're drawing on this pool of stuff from your subconscious that is not really paying attention to the rules, meaning it's like that random mutation in the bacteria that is popping and bubbling up. And so one of the things that creators do is they learn to pay attention to that that bubbling of, uh, let's think of it as the whole bunch of dots uh, that begin to get connected in the subconscious. And then they get recognized on that walk. But if you're really focused on the the task at hand, you may not be, uh, be paying attention to the dots randomly bubbling up outside the lines, outside the structure, outside the area where uh, where you where you find those uh, new new thoughts. Didn't one study find that high IQ students were surprisingly uncreative over the course of their careers? Uh, yeah. I guess that explains my uh, the, the failures of my life. Yeah, I mean, you are obviously a, a massive genius, too smart. <laughs> uh, or, uh, you know, At least I try just, to convince people I am that I am. Uh, I, I'm convinced. <laughs> um, I'm all in. Uh, the the look. That's one study. But what it suggests is that people who are finding very clear answers to problems are very good at that, and that is a its own kind of gift. But if you're working within the rule system to find answers very specifically within it, you're not coloring outside the lines. And so um, I, Einstein called. Um, Einstein called creativity intelligence having fun. And having fun might be off-roading. And that's an act of permission, not necessarily an act of rigor. So under what conditions does creativity thrive? How can we move past creative blocks? Yeah, well, well, I want to give you an I'm going to give you an exercise, Leonard, and uh, and and don't don't get uncomfortable when I ask it, okay? Because I'm not I'm going to ask you to give me your fantasies before bed, but oh. not those fantasies. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll give, I'll this give is radio, and we live by certain rules. Okay, so I'll give you an example from someone else, a uh, friend of mine. She she goes to bed and she dreams about flying, hmm. and she winds up. Uh, you know, floating through the air and covers a bunch of terrain. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to go to bed thinking about filling up a shopping cart at a sporting goods store with all the stuff I, I either wasn't allowed to buy or we couldn't afford. And I would tell myself long stories till I fell asleep. You got anything like that that the FCC is going to be all right with? <laughs> My problem is that I have very vivid dreams, but then I can never remember them after I wake up. Okay, fair enough. Um, so you can't say that you anything comes to mind before bed. Well, the reason no, the reason well, well, what comes to mind before bed is well, what, what I often do is I work on a puzzle or something to to tire myself out. Uh, and luckily, the New York Times sends its crossword puzzles on my phone at ten o'clock at night. So I get to work on them, and then I, I or I watch the news, and and boy, that tires me out. Yeah, I think that's I think it tires everybody out. Well, um, uh, the reason I mentioned this exercise for those who for whom this resonates is 
when I talk about mind wandering, people may not really understand what I mean, but that is one of those moments when you're pretty judgment free. And a lot of times what the mind wandering research will show is that people get uncomfortable when their mind wanders. Either they start to worry or they feel unproductive. And if you can connect to that, that experience of letting your mind go without judgment, turn off the device, turn off the music, go for a walk, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever it is that causes you to feel relaxed. And here I'm not talking about merely artistic creativity. This is where moments come around business ideas, uh, where where you you might draw on a, a social policy idea. But you've got to self give yourself space to let your mind wander without judgment. Actually, I do. Uh, there are certain things that occur to me before I fall asleep. They often are. Um, I get an idea about something that I want to do on my show the next day. I think, gee, I didn't write that into what we call a prep. And I, and, I better and, do it tomorrow morning if I can remember it. And I'm, I'm wondering and, pro and even guessing, hypothesizing, you're not specifically thinking of the show at that moment. You're no. just laying there doing your thing. Yes, and then suddenly this idea pops into my head. Yeah, I, I, I strongly suspect that that is, is exactly what I'm talking about here. In fact, um, you say that the idea that hits us first is much more visceral than I'm going to solve this problem. Right. In fact, if you're thinking that way, sometimes you solve an entirely different problem than the one you set out to fix. One of my favorite stories, I have a couple stories about this of entrepreneurs um, and who wound up solving problems and making a lot of money from it. But it wasn't where they started. Uh, a guy named Mike Lee, who I got to know in, here in San Francisco, um, whose son goes actually goes to school with my son, uh, was going to get he got engaged around the turn of the century and he was going to he was going to get married and he thought something that uh that a lot of us think when we're going to get married I need to slim down so he goes to 24-hour fitness and uh he he the the trainer there says here and you got to count your calories here's some paper and a pen start counting them and he thinks eh I'm a I'm a technology guy I don't I don't really feel like doing this on a piece of paper I, I'm going to start to do this this is a cool idea I'm going to start to count my calories uh, on uh, digital and I'm going to spare you the 10-year saga that got him increasingly inspired but he and his brother founded a company called my fitness pal that sold the Under Armour for 500 million dollars mm -hmm. um, and there's a guy named Mike Monsky in the book who was uh, who's a technology guy, and I think in New Jersey, but not, you know, not like a trained engineer. He worked in the remote control business, I think. He was a, he he was selling stuff, and he one day he watched his son uh, using the remote control and getting food all over it, <laughs> and he thought to himself, I can't. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to clean the ice cream or the mayonnaise out of the remote control again. And he started to think about how hard the remote control is to clean. He didn't want to clean it. Years later, he came up with the clean remote, and it gained a bunch of popularity in COVID because hotels wanted an easier remote control to clean. How could he have even thought of a pandemic at that point? He just had an aha moment. 
Is creativity highest at certain ages? On average, haven't Nobel Prize-winning physicists done their break work, their breakthrough work at at forty-eight? Um, yeah. So I love. That, have uh, you and I gotten too old to be really creative? There's hope for us, Leonard. <laughs> Still. Uh, what's that? Still. Still, because you know, it depends on the field. If it's super energy intensive, you could imagine why uh, it might happen. Uh, your creativity might happen earlier in life. I mean, I think about uh, the the um, incomparable Bruce Springsteen, who still creates and creates and creates, probably can't go on the road the way he once did. It doesn't make him less creative, but that's a, a high energy intensive experience. A physicist using his or her mind uh, really is is gaining from experience year by passing year. And one of the creators you'll read about in this book James Allison, who gets the Nobel Prize for helping cure cancer using immunotherapy, is, you know, mid-career when it happens. He's got a, he needs a lot of experience, and he's still out there creating like crazy. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I let my mind wander. What did it do? It just kept right on going Until it got back to you I, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Matt Grichtel. Uh, if you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show, with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Inspired Understanding Creativity. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we will be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. Um, but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And, and we thank you very much. And I return now to Matt Richtel. Again, the book, Inspired Understanding Creativity, from the Mariner uh, Division of HarperCollins. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter, best-selling nonfiction and mystery author. And we should point out, maybe this helps him with creativity. He plays tennis and piano and writes songs. Yeah, the, the tennis. Have I left anything out? Um, well, my wife. We have a rule in our in our house. Uh, my wife says no creative projects until the dishes are clean. <laughs> so I also do dishes. Uh, apparently, not enough. <laughs> Getting back to the the discussion, can perfectionism be a big problem? You write that if you can't make a mistake, you can't take a creative risk. I, I call perfectionism and a public enemy number one to creativity. And when I uh, there's this great, uh, great New York Times reporter who I interview for the book, um, whose name I will leave out for the moment. And he he used to ask me, he's like, ah, why do you write all these books? And I said, so and so, how come you don't write any? And he said, well, everything good's already been written. No, and not true. It, right. But. I mean, he is a great, great writer. Um, you know, I, I look up to him in a lot of ways. And and I think that um, 
you know, if, if, if and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if you put the bar at has to be something great, um, you really don't get a shot at, um, at, at, at trying in the first place. Because by definition, you can't know the outcome of a creative project until you undertake it. By definition, it's not creative if it's already been done. So you really have to lay yourself out there. Can I tell you a story about Charles Schultz? Of course. By the way, uh, it's the reason why my book, Peace and War, never made it. (laughs) (laughs) But that joke did. That joke killed. Go ahead. Charles Um, Schultz. Peanuts. Did you use an ampersand or an, an ampersand or an and? What? In your in your piece of war. <laughs> I never. That was just right, a joke. So, so um, uh, you know, years ago, one of my first really, as I started to feel my own creativity after living in a bit of a creative desert myself, I wound up writing a syndicated comic strip, um, and my editor was the editor of Peanuts. And I asked Amy to tell me a story about Charles Schultz. She called him Sparky, as some intimates did. She said, well, Sparky would wake up every day and he'd go, oh my gosh, I have got the idea for the perfect comic strip. This is it. And he would set about writing and he'd write and he'd get up the next morning and he'd look at what he'd done. He'd go, nah, I don't know, that wasn't quite it. Wait a second. I've got an idea for a perfect comic strip. <laughs> and I think I think what happens to creators when they really get moved is, and I, and I resist the word perfect here, it's probably the wrong word to choose in light of the conversation. What he meant is he had an idea for something great, mm-hmm. but he also got comfortable with the idea that it may not be great after all. Um, and he could still experience the feeling and the thrall of inspiration. I'd like if you if if I might, can I explain uh, just I have a hypothesis about why that feeling is so strong. The aha moment. Go ahead. This one I can't explain based on science. I can only explain it based on having done research this for a long time and experienced this feeling of, oh, my gosh, this thing I'm writing, this song, this book, this article for The Times, this must exist. And when I get that feeling and it is so strong, it feels like an act of faith, an act of divine intervention. Why is that so strong? Well, here's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is that were it not, had, if nature didn't give us a feeling that profound, we would never move through the status quo. It's much easier to sit on the couch. It's much easier not to write a song on a piece of paper where nothing existed before. It's much simpler not to go in and start an app like MyFitnessPal. Unless you are really inspired, it ain't going to happen. And so I think nature has programmed us to feel a near euphoric experience in order to get us over the hump of the status quo. But uh, don't we start with certain problems? Don't parents and schools often suppress creativity? Uh, I don't think they actively suppress creativity, but you are bringing up a terrific point. It's what they call it leads to what's called the fourth grade slump, doesn't it? It does. It's much more implicit. So if so far we've talked about creativity as being um, being an act of of intelligence and permission, if you will, and openness. But um, when you when you're a kid 
you are really prone to be very open. And creativity tests will show that kids come up with all these uh, fascinating, creative, interesting, imaginative, uh, nutty ideas. And then around fourth grade, that starts to slow down. Why might that be? Well, if you've been a kid, which you certainly have, or if you're a parent, um, you recognize these phrases. Don't run in the street. Don't pick your nose and eat it. Uh, this is your side of the back seat, and so on and so forth. Why do we come up with all these rules? Well, in the first instance, we're trying to keep people from not getting killed. And we teach them also that there are rules to respect other people, to preserve them from harm. Those rules get uh, reinforced in school through testing and structures. And they're there for good reason. But what they wind up doing is they wind up giving a kid uh, the idea of saying no before yes. So One haven't reason, researchers found that children were more creative when they lived in homes with fewer rules, which allowed them more it, freedom to take risks and make mistakes? They did. And these things aren't mutually exclusive. The researchers aren't suggesting that you let your kids, you know, that it let them run wild. The idea is to be less judgmental of things that are not harmful, particularly ideas. Sometimes I'll hear a parent say, and now now this makes uh, my skin crawl when I when I hear this phrasing. That's not something we say, is it? Hmm. Uh, we don't talk like that, right? <laughs> and a lot of times, what that does is reinforce to a young mind still learning that there's an explicitly right way to do things. And it causes people to set up boundaries rather than offer permissions. When we talk about creativity, are there differences if the work is in the arts or the sciences? Not to my, not to my knowledge. If I wrote that, you got to remind me. Well, haven't researchers found that people who scored higher on tests for curiosity and creativity tended to look at more regions of images ah, they that, were presented yes, that, with and spend more time with those parts of the image? Yes, that is a sorry. That's a that's a. I, I don't think I followed you at first. This is no, no. But I, I was wondering whether it's all the same. Whether the arts, because I, I'm not sure that uh, Picasso uh, is uh, his mind is working at all in the same way. His inspirations are working at all in the same way as Einstein's are. No, you're yes and no. I mean, the 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 skill, the rigorous skill set is different. But the openness and this ability to see a lot of different perspectives and input is exactly the same. And, and that dovetails with the research you brought up that, frankly, is my favorite study in the entire book. And it goes like this. Um, uh, researchers take some uh, a group of people and they give them a, a creativity test to test their innate creativity. Or not their innate creativity, but their but how creative they are in general. And this involves asking them, for instance, to come up with a lot of ideas or to elaborate on those ideas. And then this group of people gets ranked based on uh, whether they're how creative they are. So you've got a list of people from the most creative to the least creative, if you will. And they put these people in front of computer screens, 17 inches from the screen, and show them a bunch of images, abstract and less abstract. And ask them, and then and then they hook these people up to sophisticated eye tracking software and look and see what these people look at. And lo and behold, the more creative people see more stuff on the screen and spend more time looking at the things they see on the screen. Now, what is so vital about this? It tells us 
that the creative mind is letting in more information and the rigid mind or the mind that has, say, a particularly rigid worldview is less likely to do that. And you can see where this becomes a non-virtuous cycle where the rigid person is less likely to let in information, then have less information to draw from, then become less creative as a result. And that spirals where the reverse is true for the person who lets in more information. But there are different types of creativity. Haven't researchers classified instances of creativity as mini C, random observations, little C, enjoys at least minor recognition from others, pro C, created by professionals such as a published article, and big C, truly enduring creations that reestablish a feel. Is is one of the goals of this book to help your readers maximize their their creative potential and, and do a lot of big C's? Well, my goal, my goal was to open this up to everybody because I think it as uh, and we haven't gotten to this yet. But first of all, it makes people happier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even that, it's even a, it's what they do for a living. Creative well, creative activities. Does it matter whether you're doing it just it just happening or whether that's what you do f- f- as your job? I think it. I think it really depends on on whether you get stuck in the rigidity of your job or whether you're able to find creativity in it. But speaking as an N of one, I can tell you it brings an immense amount of joy. And I see this from lots of people who have transitioned out of jobs that they found not creative to ones they found creative. The reason it makes them happy, and then I'll get to your big C question, is because research seems to suggest that being behaving creativity lets people feel unburdened it lets them feel like they're leaving a legacy. It lets them share some of themselves with the world. Uh, it can be incredibly, incredibly rewarding. But to go to the big C question, uh, you know, I, I really want to discourage people from thinking that creativity has to be monumental for it to count. Because the researchers, first of all, most, even the, the creators we most remember from our day will not well be remembered even 50 years later. When I started this book, one day I was playing basketball with my son out front of our house, and I said, I'm, I'm going to try to interview Bono for this book. And my son said, Bono, is that a him or a her? Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't making a gender statement. He just had never heard of Bono. He was 11 years old at the time. And so let's not conflate fame and fortune with creativity. The best creations, the ones we remember, um, maybe big C's or pro C's, uh, but they but they were built on the backs of little C's. So the creations that many of us do every day become unseen contributions to a much greater uh, uh, creation down the line. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Matt Richtel, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist at the New York Times, His latest book, Inspired Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul, published by Mariner Books. Um, You mentioned basketball. You spoke to a number of people, including Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State State Warriors. Uh, I guess creativity uh, plays a major role in, in sports, but it's not something that it really comes to mind immediately. We're more likely to think about it in terms of some of the other people you talk to, like Yo-Yo Ma. 
Yeah. Um, first of all, are we allowed to talk about Steve Kerr in New York? Sure. Okay, because I, I don't want people turning As long off as you don't people. use certain words that maybe people may shout out at the, at the garden. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, look, I, I'd heard through the grapevine that Steve is uh, Coach Kerr. Uh, is a, uh, I don't know what he wants to be called on the radio. He'd probably rather be called Steve. Um, uh, is it was a very creative, open person. And I heard a particular story that made me want to talk to him. And I went and, I went and heard it firsthand from him. It had to do with, um, uh, I think, a 2015 or 16 Warriors team. And I, forgive me, I can't remember. Um, but they were, they had had an amazing season and found themselves in the finals against LeBron uh, down two games to one after after the Warriors had won 69 games. That's all. For those who don't follow basketball, you win over 50 a year, you're having a pretty darn good year. Hmm. They'd won 69 games. They were down two to one, and they were playing at Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland, and they were facing LeBron James, and Steve Kerr needed an answer. And lo and behold, uh, some days earlier, a uh, uh, kind of a, a young coach, not 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 even a, a big guy sitting on the bench, who studies video, had noticed something in the video about the way a different team had played LeBron James, and called up the uh, Luke Walton, the assistant coach of the Warriors, in the middle of the night, and said, "I saw this thing. It may be interesting." The assistant coach stole Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr changed the starting lineup that they'd used to win 69 games, and they went on to beat LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers in that final. And Steve Kerr gets up and is asked about this significant lineup change, and he gives credit to the video guy. Now, it may not sound all that creative, but um, it really fundamentally is because what Steve has is a profoundly open mind to sources of information that are not hierarchical. It's not like he would only take interesting input from someone who had the right title. And if you see the way Kerr runs the Warriors now, you'd be hard pressed not to say he's not, is he, I don't know, is he creative or is he creative? Hey, I just made that up. Now, I mentioned Yo-Yo Ma. Does it matter whether you are the creator or somebody who is performing the works of a creator? I'm not sure that it does because I think the interpretation uh, of a of a by by a by a musical artist, say, or a dancer, is profoundly creative. And and I, in the last chapter of this book, I, I watch Yo-Yo Ma do a performance. And look at the expression and emotion on his face. And it's like a, it's like a, I describe it as a topographical map of his soul. And it's extraordinary to see. And that is part of what makes Yo-Yo Ma who he is. He is letting it go in the moment in a super authentic fashion. Now, we only have a, a few minutes left, but I want to address another thing that I, I, I'm fascinated by in your book. You say that the more people you have in close congregation, the more creativity gets developed because you have collaboration, you have competition, you have cooperation, you have ideas being honed and shared. So are we going through a rough time right now because many people are working from their homes these days? 
I, I'm going to say quite the opposite. I think we are in, I'm, I make the argument that we're in the most creative period in human history. And that is because technology is allowing people to um, share ideas, share technology. I mentioned I do a bunch of music. I sent a garage band file to someone the other day. Just this morning, I got back an incredible uh, lyrical interpretation uh, of, this, of this song I wrote. Uh, let's see, I wrote it. A keyboardist in Colorado laid it down. Uh, a singer in Marin uh, let, put it over the top. You know, that's just a tiny example. But to put it in concrete terms, in the year 2018, there were 199,000 patents applied for by people that were international, across international lines collaborating, something like double 10 years earlier. So we're in a kind of new Jerusalem. If that had 500,000 people, we've got a globe of potential collaborators now. What did Judd Apatow tell you about the writer's room? Oh, Judd. Uh, I love talking to Judd. Uh, he, he, by the way, he's great. The more I've gotten to know him, the more curious uh, I've, I understand he is and the more just compulsively creative he is. But he describes the writer. He, he told me about writer's rooms comedic writers rooms and to me they are like a, a living example uh, uh, a biosphere of neurobiology because here's how they work like the subconscious these comedic writers throw out one idea after the next they get filterless and then after all these ideas are out just like the subconscious spitting out brains uh sorry, spitting out ideas then they start to apply rigor to them. They ridicule each other. They laugh at them. They cry over them, whatever it is that they do in that analytical process, and they begin to hone them down. It's the equivalent of the subconscious coming up with an idea and then the analytical parts of the brain putting rigor to it. But what he said that was really interesting to me is he compared two writer's rooms. He compared one where the head writer was so... Um, kind of authoritarian that it scared people too much to actually spit out the ideas in the first place versus one where the head writer was so open and authentic that it really caused people to share at the deepest level and it was a much richer work and creative environment as a result. Can offices be reorganized so that they are more likely to encourage creative work? You know, an entire field of management um, uh, creative innovation around management is cropped up. And I, I, the answer is yes. There's a lot of work being done about trying to get managers, in particular middle managers, permission to, to invite creativity. What I understand from the management gurus, uh, the scholars who study this, is that it's really hard to be in middle management and allow for creativity because you're constantly trying to satisfy someone above you uh, who needs things done in a certain way while getting uh, the most out of the people below you. And it doesn't leave a lot of room for the creativity that could blow away expectations in a good way, uh, but you don't have a lot of time to allow it. So, yes, there is a lot of management thought being going into that. And do, is that reflected in the way institutions change, like where we see a magazine change its style or a newspaper? Oh, 100%. I mean, I hate to be a flag waver here, and, and as soon as I mention the New York Times, people are going to have all sorts of strong feelings. But it's hard not to marvel at what the New York Times has done. 
you know, this was this is an industry that's been more or less murdered the last two decades. And the number you mentioned, you know, doing your crossword puzzle online or Wordle, uh, you know, which the Times bought. But but there are so many different ideas that the Times has come up with and essentially transformed itself into uh, a viable product when so many newspapers, uh, which the New York Times once was, have have effectively died. Matt Richtel is a reporter at the New York Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting for a series of articles about distracted driving that he expanded into his first nonfiction book. Uh, he's written a number of books, and uh, the one that we've been discussing is Inspired Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. It is published by the Mariner uh, Division of HarperCollins, and it's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Leonard, so much for having me. It's a privilege. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Inspired Understanding Creativity by Matt Richtel. So why not make that call right now? 212-209-2950. Go online at give2wbai.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'll say thank Thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI is the only station in the New York Radio Dell that's 100% listener-sponsored. We don't take foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Um, and your uh, your support is tax deductible. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Thursday when my guest will be Don Holloway discussing his new book, At the Gates of Rome. We'll see you then. <laughs>